นมัตุรัตนทยสะฟรีจนถึงความสงบและความสุขที่เราเรียกว่าสุขที่เราเรียกว่าสุขที่เราเรียกว่าสุขที่เราเรียกว่าสุขที่เราเรียกว่าสุขที่เราเรียกว่าส
And most of them, they looked at this love, life of indulgence, and these were sort of the people who had a little bit of a higher mind and sort of realized that this was not a way to find real and true and lasting happiness. And you see this nowadays as well. Not everyone buys into this materialistic culture. We're not all looking to be rich and powerful. There's actually a lot of people who are looking for a, another way. And so the people who realize the, the disadvantages the negative side of sensuality, that actually it doesn't lead you to be a happier person. It tends to lead to moments of ecstasy or bliss or, or intense happiness and joy, followed by long periods of dreary boredom and uh, you know, quiet suffering. In fact, it can lead the mind to become quite upset when we lose the things that we love, the things that we are attached to, can lead people to kill themselves. So there were people who realized this, and so they thought, well, then what else can we do? And there were various meditative traditions, of course, in the time of the Buddha. But there was one prevailing theme was this idea of uh, torturing yourself, or kind of like working to get rid of, of some of the... Um, some of this attachment or this addiction which we have towards uh, sensuality and towards the world. And they, 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 they sort of caught up on this, that this, uh, this addiction was not really a good thing. Once we get the things that we want, it only leads us to want more. And so getting what we want is obviously not, not as good a thing as we think it is because it leads to this addiction. And any time that you can't get what you want, you suffer. You uh, feel like unsatisfied. You feel... Uh, you didn't get what you want. So they, many people decided to take the other route, and this was to, to torture yourself or to, to work to somehow get, out, get rid of these attachments. And so they had all sorts of ways. Many people would fast, and there's even a religious sect in India now that still believes that fasting is the way to enlightenment. And the deal with fasting is that when you stop eating, your, mind, your body becomes very weak. And of course, all the hormonal systems stop working, so it gets really easy to go by, get by, without having strong lust or greed arise, or anger or hatred arise. So you feel kind of enlightened, actually. You feel kind of like you don't have any bad things inside. But the truth of it is, as soon as you start eating again, all of it comes back, because it's simply a, the body is unable to uh, create these states. And there's interesting. Um, taking to the extreme, people who have had strokes, sometimes there was this interesting story of a, a woman who had a stroke, a brain surgeon, I believe, and she had a stroke and she was able to understand what, what it did to her. She was no longer judging. She no longer had any judgment of anything. And it was kind of like this, she had this idea that it was some kind of enlightenment, like she was just experiencing things in the present moment for what they were. But actually, it's just an inability of the faculties. There's a, uh, a strong sort of like repressing the mind, pushing the mind into a certain place where none of those things can arise. But of course, when the brain functions normally again, all of these things came back for her. You know, of course, she was able to see that, compare the two states. And this, I think, helped her to sort of learn how to overcome judgment, judging as well. This isn't a bad thing, but... Uh, and also, with, with not eating, there's something good to it. When you, when you slow down your eating, you can see the difference. But if you get the wrong idea that 
You're just stopping eating is somehow going to make you enlightened and so you fast to death thinking that you're going to somehow become enlightened. It, it really doesn't work that way. You do have to come back and you have to be able to see the difference and you have to be able to deal with these emotions so that when the, say, the hormones arise, when you see something you like and it leads you, the, the hormonal system to start working, you're able to see these hormones simply as a bodily function. And no matter how strong they are, there actually arises no wanting in the mind. This is much more important, is to be able to deal with the, the things around us without getting addicted to them. You know, no matter how strong they are, no matter how enticing they are. To, to maintain our equilibrium, our balance, our stability of mind. So the Buddha lived for 20, 29 years indulging in sensuality before he realized that it wasn't likely to be the way. He realized that you know, he was getting old. He was 29 at the time and you know, starting to get into his old age. Uh, but no, he was he was growing up and he was getting to the point where it's like, well, this is where he had to start thinking about becoming king. His father's getting old. and you know, what, What's he going to do when he goes on? He's going to go on to be king and then he's going to get old and he's going to get sick and die. And it sort of hit him that you know, now was sort of the time where he had to choose. And they say he actually, this was when the first time that he actually saw old age, sickness and death. Uh, but at any rate, it was the, the point where he chose to uh, find a different way he realized, like everyone else, that these things just don't satisfy you. I mean, he was he was surrounded by women. He was this prince, and the luxury was so great. He had like a hundred servants, and they were all women. They were all young, attractive women dancers, and, and of course, all of these probably there were concubines and so on. It was it was a a place of utter debauchery. It was um, utter hedonism. He had everything he wanted. He didn't ever think. He said. I never thought to even go down to the lower floor of his of my palace. It was so everything he wanted was there. And all of his wishes were fulfilled. But all he saw that this was doing was just creating more and more attachment, more and more wanting. There was no benefit to it. There was no uh, nobility to to this. I mean, we talk about nobles by birth or so on. Once the Buddha became enlightened, he said, "Buddha, it has said nobility isn't a birth thing. You know, aren't born into nobility. This is something we can understand nowadays. We don't believe this either. That somehow, just because you're born noble, it makes you somehow high, and you can live this life of of utter uh, intoxication. Actually, nobility is something that you have to work at if you want to be an ordinary uh, person who does nothing good, who has no." greatness about them, and this is one thing, but if you have in your mind the idea of some sort of nobility, this idea that you should become someone who you're, you are proud to be, not that you are holding yourself up, but that you feel like you've done something with your life, that your life is meaningful in some way, then you have to work at it, obviously. You can't just say, I was born a king, and that means something, it means nothing. And so he realized how useless these things were for him and for everybody else, and so he left the home life. And he went to the other extreme. He started torturing himself. Uh, he, he did practice some yogic meditation as well. Before he started torturing himself, he went and found some teachers. And he practiced a little bit of meditation, you know, some kind of transcendental or, or Hindu yogic meditation, where he was able to 
bring his mind above the problem, where he was no longer focusing on this body, focusing on the, the emotions or so on, where he was able to push, repress these things to the point where his mind was able to leave his body and where he was able to enter this state of utter bliss, utter peace, uh, where he was able to encompass the whole universe with his mind and so on, this great expansiveness that this this woman who had a stroke, she also talked about this state of great expansiveness where the mind was just immense, so much bigger than the body. And he tried all this and he realized that, you know, in the end he's not learning anything. In the end it's kind of just a form of, of like sort of a special form of escapism. And in the end it's just running away from the problem. The problems are actually right here and right now. The problems are with with our body and are with our mind or with the everyday experience that we have. When we see something, it makes us uh, want it. When we hear something, it makes us uh, hate it or so on. When we have good food, we become intoxicated with the taste and so on. And these are the problems right here and now. We don't have to go anywhere to look for the, the sickness. So if we want to find a cure, well, we, the, the, the cure here is simply to learn and to understand these things. And as we practice, we come to understand uh, what are the good things and what are bad things and what are the things that are leading us to addiction and to, to, to ultimately to suffering. And what are the things that are giving us a balanced, a quiet, a peaceful, a wise mind, a mind which we can take as our home and live in. What is giving us a place where we can just live content in our minds without needing this or needing that, without depending on other things, without depending on things which are impermanent. And so he gave that up. And so he started focusing back on, the, on himself, on reality, but he, he, he went to the other extreme. You know, the one extreme is ultimate sensual pleasure, the other extreme is torturing himself. And he thought, well, okay, so this body is full of all sorts of bad stuff, this mind is full of all sorts of bad stuff, I'll just torture myself. And this was common at that time. It's still common in India. You see a lot of these <coughs> uh, rishis and so on. Some of them are really into torturing themselves. Um, and he tried that for six years until he was almost dead. He stopped eating. He stopped breathing. Uh, he, he did all sorts of uh, funny things, ways of finding ways to torture himself. And in the end, he, he said, you know, if I keep going, I'm just going to die. And I haven't learned anything from this. I've you know, only learned how far you can take it. Nobody else could go any further without dying, he said. So he realized this was useless. And he came back and he started, you know, realize, he, he thought of it this way, you know, if, if the mind is all stirred up and all in, in all this pain and agony, you know, how can I really come to see clearly? And it's like a, a pool of water. When the water is all muddied up, you can't see clearly. So he said, well, okay, then I'll sit and I'll, I'll start to calm my mind down. And so he calmed his mind down, you know, starting to just, just watch, just slowly ease into the reality of the situation, of, of his experience. And he realized that this was actually beneficial and he was actually learning something. And, you know, finally, I mean, you have to understand that at that time, nobody really had a clue. There was all these different ideas and everybody had different ideas of the truth, but there was no Buddha, there was nobody to lead the way. For all of us meditators, it seems kind of like, well, you know, wasn't he just missing the obvious, this whole 
being mindful, staying in the present moment, and so on. And the answer is, you know, there was nobody that we have now. We don't have a, we didn't have a Buddha at that time. We somehow take for granted sometimes what kind of, what sort of influence the Buddha has had on on modern intellectual thought. I mean, what influence he had on Greek, on Greece, on on uh, what influence he's he's had even on modern psychology. You know, if you look, if you talk to therapists or so on. Quite often they're using the Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist psychology. They're using Buddhist meditation as sort of a framework for how to how to um, how to help people out of their their stress. And so, I, I mean, the Buddha was was just coming to it for the first time. And I mean, this is not an easy thing to do when you don't have a teacher. He was teaching himself the way, and this is what we say was so special about the Buddha. He didn't need a teacher. I mean, if you think just of morality, I mean, if you've never heard, most people in this world, it's not that they don't want to keep these these moral precepts, it's they've never heard anybody say that these are wrong. It's never just never occurred to them. No one that they respect has ever said, yeah, you know, killing is wrong, stealing is wrong, and so on. And when you don't hear these things, when when, when you don't have anybody teaching them, it, it, it just... It, it's just something that you you know you you take for granted that these things are okay to do, that these things are there's no need to change. And so, what the Buddha was realizing was a new way, something that nobody had ever came come to before. You know, he'd gone to both extremes, and he found what he called the middle way. This is the way of of never indulging in anything, you know, never letting your mind follow after anything, simply staying with the reality of the present moment. At the same time, not repressing anything. You know, this torture, this um, denying yourself the full experience of things. So when you feel such pleasure, sometimes you feel bodily pleasure. When it comes up, you let it come up. But you let it come up, you stay with it, and you know it for what it is. And this is why we use this mental noting. We want to create a clear thought where we see the thing clearly, where our thought about the object is simply for what it is. And this is why we say to ourselves, when the belly rises, we say rising. When we feel pain, we say pain. Instead of letting our thoughts wander into liking or disliking, or you know, even wandering away from the object, we focus on the object and simply know it for what it is, rising. That's all it is. Pain, that's all it is. It's not good, it's not bad. It's not me, it's not mine. It's not, my leg's not going to fall off, and it's not a bad thing to be sitting in meditation, and so on. It simply is what it is. All of these other things are mental uh, fomentation, or mental diversification. We make things more of things. We make more of things than they actually are. And so this is what he started to realize. And in the end, he he came to realize this this noble eightfold path, which became the first thing that he taught. So after he became enlightened, he traveled. He had practiced with these five ascetics. You know, when he was torturing himself, there were six of them. And when he realized that this was useless, he started eating again, and they all looked at him like he had given up. So he had stopped eating, and they thought, wow, you know, this guy's a real ascetic. And then he started eating again, because he realized it was useless, that this wasn't, you know, simply starving yourself is really a stupid thing to do. It, 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 it's, it's not, you know, if it were that easy, we, we, you know, all these people in Ethiopia or all these people who were starving to death, they'd be enlightened. It's, it's obvious that that's not the case. It's, it's such a simple thing to do. It has nothing to do with enlightenment. So he stopped doing it. 
But they were so fixed on this that they gave him up. They, they, they left him. So the first thing he did when he became enlightened was chase after them. Go to, you know, hey guys, I've got something here. You know, he's got proof now. He's got something he can show them. Of course, it wasn't like that hey guys thing. He was a, he's a fully enlightened Buddha. He was very majestic about it all. And he walked, they say something like, I think 120 Yojana, I think. I, I can't remember. Very far distance. If you've ever been to India, you know, from the distance from Buddha Gaya, from Gaya to uh, to Bar Varanasi, Banaras, I think they called it at the time. No, they called it Varanasi at the time. I believe now it's gone back to being called Varanasi. Kasi is another name for it. That's quite a long way, and he walked that whole distance on foot. And he met a man, and he met a man along the way, and. The man asked him if he was a god, and he said, you claim to be a god? And he said, no. Do you claim to be uh, an angel? No. Do you claim to be a human? He said, no. And then the guy said, well, what are you? And he said, I'm awake. And then he kept walking. And that's just, that's just a short interlude as to who is the Buddha. But when he got to, to where these, these men were staying, he traveled along and he met this man, and when he got to the the place where these these five ascetics were, right away they weren't going to they weren't going to have any of it. They weren't going to listen to him. You know, they thought, well, this guy's you know he tortured himself and he still couldn't become enlightened. Now what's he going to? He's all fat and and uh, healthy. How's he going to become enlightened? But he managed to convince them, and and you know, they looked at him and he seemed very special. There was something special about the way he talked, something special about the way he looked, something special about his, his whole being. And so they were able to accept it. They realized that he was saying things that he never said before. He was making claims that he never made before. And so they listened to what he had to say. And the first thing he said, well, first he said, you know, these two extremes are useless. You have to follow the middle way. And then he started to explain this middle way. And the first thing he said is right view. The first thing about the, the right path is right view. So tonight, this is just background. Tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about right view. Right view is actually a very simple thing to understand. It simply means giving up wrong views. Um, or, or, or the most important thing about right view anyway is that it means the giving up of all sorts of wrong views. And in fact, someone who has right view is just someone who's given up all of these wrong views. All of views and opinions really the, the only view that we want is an understanding of reality, an understanding of what makes up uh, phenomenological experience, our experience of the reality around us. What is the truth of that? And so all of these other views and opinions, you know, the idea of the soul, the idea of, the, of God, the idea of the universe, the idea of the past, the ideas of the future, all of these things, right view just means giving them up not having any opinion on the matter whatsoever. You know, this is the self, this is, this is God, this is me, this is mine, this is what the past, this is what's going to happen in the future, this is how big the universe is, or what makes up the universe. You know, a lot of these things that science is chasing after, a lot of the things that religion is chasing after. You know, science is chasing after all of these understandings of the universe and theories and so on. All of these things the Buddha said, wrong. Throw them out. Wrong. Why? Because they're useless. They have no benefit. If you want to say that they have benefit in the here and now, you know, 
the atomic theory, it'll give us nuclear energy. Well, it also give us a nuclear bomb. These are things that give us power. They don't give us wisdom. They don't give us happiness. I mean, you can compare the happiness, say, in India, for instance. If you look at the people on the side of the road living in cardboard boxes, these huts, and then you look at the people living in the mansions, you know, it's very hard to tell who is happier. And you can see this all around the world. It's not true that the people living up in the mansions and you know, with huge bank accounts are somehow in any way happier. Sometimes it's the people who have no money, who have not, no possessions. These are the happiest, the freest. There's a story in the Buddha, Buddha's time of a king who became a monk. And I think I've told this before. And he just sat there under a tree when he was a monk. And he just said, oh, what happiness. What happiness. And he just sat there. I mean, it's kind of a mental acknowledgement. Happy, happy. This is the idea. He was sitting there just saying, happy, happy. What happiness. And all the monks thought, well, this guy's, you know, he's got to be thinking about when he was a king and he's sitting there, you know, his mind is daydreaming for sure. He's sitting there thinking about when he was a king. So they brought him to the Buddha and the Buddha verified that no, you know, actually being a king is a lot of suffering. And this monk explained, you know, when I was a king, I had these uh, bodyguards and I was always worried about being assassinated and I had all of these uprisings and civil war and I mean, think of how much work it is to be president or this kind of thing. And when, when he became a monk, when he gave it all up, he was like, wow, what, what peace, what happiness. I mean, what a life this is. So, we, we, have, we have all of these views and ideas and in the end, when, we, when it comes right down to it, most of them are all of them, all of our opinions are really useless for us. I mean, you can even have the opinion, you know, if you have this opinion that, um, you know, say all formations are impermanent. You know, everything that arises has to cease. If you have this opinion, it's useless to you. It's not that it's not true. In fact, it's a very important insight that comes from meditation practice. But if it's just an opinion, it's useless. I mean, you can sit there and say to yourself, all formations are impermanent. You're not any wiser for it. You can even sit there and think about it. Sit there and think, yeah, I mean, yesterday is gone. Or this morning I was tired, now I'm wide awake. You know, this morning I was hungry, now I'm full. This morning it was hot, now it's cold. Yeah, everything's impermanent. It does you no good. It's useless. Well, it's maybe a little bit useful. It helps you understand, oh yeah, this is, this is what I have to learn. But it's not the same as learning it firsthand. And so this is the reason why all views, we have to give up all views, and in the end only have what we call right view. And right view is an understanding of reality. Of course, it, it, it bears, it's worth noting that until we gain this right view, that we do have to hold on to some things. We're going to have to sort of slowly work into it. We have to have an understanding of karma, for instance. And this is wholesome. It's in the end, it's just a view. But if we have the view, you know that good deeds are good, bad deeds are bad. Good deeds lead to happiness. Bad deeds, bad deeds lead to suffering. This is useful, just as understanding. As I said, you know, it doesn't make you enlightened. But when you understand about impermanence, suffering, and non-self, it's useful in the beginning, as long as you don't misunderstand that that these these views are somehow uh, 
you know, a, a sort of a um, a substitute for real understanding. So when there's there's other kinds of right view. We have the right view, understanding of good deeds and bad deeds, understanding of the results of good deeds, the results of bad deeds. These are also a kind of right view, but here what we're talking about when we talk about right view in terms of the path which leads to enlightenment, it has nothing to do with those. It has nothing to do with any speculative view. Uh, when we talk about right view, we're talking about giving up all of our opinions, all of these statements that start with, I believe. And I believe is such a, such a ridiculous statement in, in a lot of ways, except that we find ourselves using it all the time and we hear everyone around us using it. And it's really meaningless, actually, what you believe. I mean, it doesn't say anything about reality. It's more or less just a conversation, you know. Well, I believe. Oh, well, that's interesting. And it's nice to think about. I mean, I once talked to a man in Thailand, a, f a foreign man living in Thailand. And he said he, he believed, or he heard someone else believed, that in each of our atoms there's another universe. In each of those universes, there's another earth. In each of those earths, earths, there's more people. And in each of those people, there's more atoms. And it just keeps going on and on and on. I listened to him and said, well, yeah, it's very interesting. But you know, it, it, it's really, it's really far-fetched. And whether it's true or not really has very little impact on how we live our lives or, or you know, how we're going to improve ourselves and become free from suffering. In the end, all of these views, as, as interesting or as, as thought-provoking as they are, they only lead, the Buddha said, to, to, tang, to becoming tangled, becoming entangled and getting all mixed up and not knowing up from down, right from wrong. And this is how we find ourselves nowadays. We don't know where to turn. We don't know who's right. We've got all these different opinions about the universe and the world. And this is sort of the way humanity has gone for a long time. We're all mixed up with all of these different ideas. And for every theory, there's another counter-theory. For every philosophical idea, there's another one to completely contradict it. And all this wrangling and so on. So in the end, all of these things, they don't lead to complete freedom from suffering. In the end, we have to give them up. And so here, when we come to practice meditation, this is what the basis of the Lord Buddha's teaching was to give right view to create inside of ourselves right understanding, an understanding which is based on empirical observation of the reality around us and inside of us. So how do we do this? Well, the way we do this, there are five dhammas, five things that the Lord Buddha said uh, encourage right view and the giving up of wrong view. This is, this is in the scriptures, so I'm going to go through these and I'm going to explain them because what we're trying to do here is of course bring about right view. I'm not just coming up here to make you all feel good and get something you can take home and think about. We're really trying to impart an understanding of reality. And this is what we hope to gain through our practice here. This is what we hope for everyone who comes here, that they start to understand reality more. They're not flying off into some alternate universe. They're going to understand this universe, understand this reality, this experience. What's going on right here and now? Why is it that we suffer from the from the reality around us? Why is it that these things create suffering for us? What we don't realize is they don't have to. And this is because we haven't yet this right understanding. So what are these five things? The first one is sila, which means morality. The second one is sutta, which means uh, learning, 
study or listening, having heard a lot. Number three is sakacha, which means discussion. Number four is samatha, which means tranquility. And number five is vipassana, which means insight. These five things are the five dhammas, the five things, five mental qualities or five virtues that lead to the arising of right view and the giving up of wrong view. So now to explain them. I'll just go through these briefly and then we can call it a night. Silang means morality. So the first important thing in any spiritual practice is that you become moral. And most especially when you want to bring about right view, when you want to bring about understanding. This is because immorality is is the biggest factor in creating imbalance in the mind because it's so gross you know you can sit there and think bad thoughts all you want but when you go ahead and do it it's not only are you thinking it you're you're creating you're manifesting this whole series of energy and this huge amount of of effort is expended comparative to simply thinking it so when you do bad things or when you say bad things these are Incredible! There's an incredible amount, or a, a huge difference between simply thinking them and actually doing them. The amount of energy, the amount of power that they have. When you go ahead and kill something, kill a living being, you know you yourself don't want to die. So what you're doing here, you're giving rise to a perverted sort of experience of reality, where something that is undesirable you're bringing about on another living being. As a result, it creates it creates disruption in your mind. It doesn't allow you... You can't see the problem of doing it because your mind is clouded. And as you kill or hurt or, or torture other beings, you know, even with speech, saying harsh, harsh words, saying bad things to other, other people or, or so on, you can't really see because your mind is so... is on fire. And you, 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 you get caught up in this cycle of again and again and again, cruelty and meanness, until finally it hits you, until finally someone fights back, or it, 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 you can no longer be cruel. You can no longer do these things, if that point ever comes, if you're lucky. But as soon as you stop, as soon as you take on this rule not to say, not to kill, for someone who has killed before, you can see the incredible effect it's had on your mind how it's given rise to anger, how it's making you a, a mean-minded person, mean-spirited person. When you steal, when you cheat, when you lie, you can see when you stop doing these things. If you don't stop, you never see that they're wrong, so you never have this right understanding because your mind is, is all mixed up. You know, when, you, when, you're a ba when, you're, when you're an immoral person, you're always thinking about how to escape how to stop people from realizing the bad things that you're doing, you know, stopping people from knowing that you've stolen or so on. E even to the extent of drugs and alcohol. You know, this is an immorality. Why? Because it disrupts your mental clarity. You can't tell that drinking is wrong when you keep drinking. If you're a drunk, you know, you've always got a way out. You just drink more. And you drink and drink and drink. And then finally you become an alcoholic and you realize that either you stop or you die. There's, there's no way out of it. I mean, of course, for most of us, for all of these things, we're able to keep it at a minimum, and we do them sometimes. But as long as you don't understand that these are wrong, things are wrong and you take them as a rule, whenever the opportunity comes up, you're just going to go ahead and do them. 
and you're not going to see that these things are a cause for disruption of the mind. When you have a chance to do something, suppose you have a chance to, or it comes up to you, you know, you're at a party and, and uh, you know, here's the time where everyone's, you know, they're all having fun because they're all drunk, you know, and you don't drink alcohol. And you get to see the, the, the addiction. You get to see how, how our ordinary state is just not good enough. Right? How we have to sit there and everyone else is having fun. and you know, we, Our natural state is somehow not good enough for us. And we start to see that we're actually living in a state of, of, um, kind of a state of dependence. Where we can't, our ordinary state, our natural balanced state of being is not enough for us. It's not enough for us because of our our dependence on these things, because we don't ever you know bring the strength um, create the strength in ourselves to just stand our ground and say, "No, I don't need these things. No, these things are not help not beneficial to me. These are things which cloud the mind, things which disrupt my state of peace, my state of balance, my state of harmony. When you can do this, then you start to see the difference. You start to see how strong you are how independent you are, how free you are. Now freedom, it's amazing how, how morality's, you know, refraining from doing things actually makes you free. We think freedom is, you know, I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to listen to you. I had one guy I was working with him and I tried to get him to stop drinking and he got so angry at me. He was like, I can drink if I want. I know it's right. We think this is freedom. We, we, we hate it when people take away our freedoms. But actually, it's such such dependence, you know, and it's such um, slavery. We're a slave to our emotions. We're a slave to our desires. When we give all these things up, I mean, when monks, when you talk about monks not being able to listen to music, not being able to go out, and this and that, and all of these things that monks can't do, we think, wow, what's what, what a uh, you know kind of a um, it's a, such freedom that they've taken away from themselves, and in fact. It's such freedom to not need these things, which is such a difficult thing. It's, it's impossible for most of us. We're slaves to these things. You know, why is ordinary sound not good enough for us? Why do we need this special sound that we call music? Why can't we just listen to the ordinary sound? Why can't all sound be music to us, as an example? Why can't all food be delicious? Why can't uh, everything we experience be just fine the way it is? You know, wouldn't that be much nicer than having to depend on this kind of experience and not this kind of experience. Morality is, of course, in, the, in this way, the first thing that we need uh, in, our, in, in our spiritual journey, our, our spiritual understanding. Because until we stop doing these things, we can't see the, the negative of effect of anger, the negative effect of greed, because it's too strong in our minds and we're cultivating it. We're, we're living it all the time. We're like drunk. We can't see the problem being drunk. It's impossible to tell a drunk that there's something wrong with, you know, explain to them the disadvantages of disadvantages of, of inebriation. They just can't see it. They're drunk. When you stop doing it, then you can start to see. This is the first one. The second one, uh, suttang, is means studying. So this is where I said yes. Okay, give granted that it's important for us to study. There is benefit from, you know, me giving a talk like this, for instance. If the Buddha had never taught, had never gone out and, and explained to people, you know, what are the four foundations of mindfulness? You know, how do you practice meditation? How do you come to understand what is reality? What is just illusion? 
and all of these teachings that the Lord Buddha gave about about immorality. If if he didn't teach morality, how could people know what's what? What are the things that uh, that lead your mind to to become disrupted and distra- distressed and upset, and so on? So suttang is also very important. If you don't if you don't have a teacher, it's very very difficult to understand what is real and what is not real. So here, all of us we rely on on the Buddha, who we say was a very special person who was actually able to understand these things for ourselves, for himself. For most of the rest of us, I don't think it's quite likely that we're going to. I mean, for myself, I know for sure I would have been, if I hadn't had advice and and guidance on the Buddha's way, uh, to the extent that I have, there's no way I could be on the right path now. You know, I would have gone on to live my life probably you know, living quite a different life and unable to experience this, you know, this um, you know, this great freedom which comes from morality, which comes from concentration, which comes from understanding. Because of course there'd be no morality. If there's no morality, the mind is not focused. If the mind is not focused, and it's impossible to see clearly. So we need this. We need this sort of teaching. It's important that we do study. You know, listening to my talks is certainly not enough. It's important that we come and we we do learn some of the. You know, you have to learn the technique of how to meditate. You have to learn some of the theory behind it. You have to come to really understand. Wow, a lot of these things that I believe are actually just views. We have to understand from a theoretical point of view as well. So this is why, in fact, listening to the Dhamma, you can actually become enlightened. It's it's such a quick becoming enlightened doesn't take time. It has nothing to do with time where you have to say, okay, I have to practice this many years and I'm going to become enlightened. These five monks, when they were sitting listening, one of them became, uh, you can say, he saw the truth for the first time. He became an enlightened individual of a certain level. You know, he had seen the truth, but he still had further to, more work to do. But he saw the way to go just by listening to the Buddha's teaching. And this is, of course, because he put it into practice when he was listening. When we talk about reality, well, what's the reality of this experience? The reality is not what I'm teaching you. What I'm teaching you is all concepts. Every word I say is only a concept in your mind. You know what this word means. You can put sentences together, and it creates a, a certain chain reaction in your mind, and your, it creates thoughts of your own. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't like it. Maybe you agree with it, maybe you disagree, maybe you're sure, maybe you're unsure, maybe you're confused, or so on. But these are the reality, all of these states. So the sound of my voice is actually just a sound. If you watch that sound arise and cease, you can see that it's just coming and going, coming and going. And if you watch this, you can actually get to the point where you're so uh, clear about reality that you can become enlightened just by listening to the sound of my voice. You can see that it's coming and going, that it's arising and ceasing, and you start to you start to give up these uh, these illusions that we have. You know, listening to him talk. You know, maybe I I think I've got another way that's better than his, or maybe I really like his way, or so on. Maybe I like the sound of his voice, or maybe it's boring. All of these things we can give up, and when we give them up, our mind becomes clear and becomes focused, and we simply see things for what they are. Of course, we have tools for this. The tools we use when we feel, when we hear the sound, we say to ourselves, hearing, hearing, hearing. And our mind becomes so focused on this reality that we're actually able to become enlightened. I mean, it takes time. It's not like, 
I'm expecting all of you to sit here and listen to my voice and become enlightened, but this is how it can happen. Listening is very important. When you listen to someone talk and to teach the right things when they start to teach meditation, you can just practice while you're sitting there. You don't have to listen to what I'm saying. If you just say hearing, 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 and watch the sound, that's exactly what I'm trying to explain. That's exactly where we're going. We're trying to get closer to reality. The problem is we don't understand what is real and what is not real, so we have to listen to the, the conceptual speech. We have to listen to the speaking to try to bring ourselves back closer to this reality. So this is the second one, which is very important in bringing about right view. The third important thing is discussion. This one I always, I always find funny when I tell meditators, they always perk up and they think, oh, that means we can talk to each other? <laughs> means we can sit around chatting all day? Great. But no, discussion here means discussing with someone who, who you know, has a degree in this kind of thing, as to, to give an example, or to use a, a turn of the phrase, to use a phrase. To have a degree means someone who has some understanding in this, someone who has practiced, someone who has gone, the, who has gone through the practice already. It means discussion with one's teacher. So in this case, it was discussion with the Buddha. What happened was, while well, this one monk became in, uh, a sodapanna, he, be, he saw the truth for the first time, we say. So this put him on the right path. He was already okay. It was like, okay, so he understands and he's going to practice in the right way. But these other guys are still have no clue, really. They're kind of confused. So for the next four days, the Buddha had to teach them. And he spent the next four days teaching them about uh, you know, what was the right practice, what was the wrong practice. When this arose, trying to, you know, trying to teach them how to get over this experience or that experience. Because some people would sit there and they'd see bright lights. Some of these monks, uh, when they saw these bright lights, they think, "Oh, that's the way to go," and they follow after these bright lights or so on. And so he had to teach them, "Okay, this is just bright lights. Just say to yourself, seeing, seeing, or just know it for what it is." And this is called discussion. This is where the teacher comes in. This is why you need a teacher. You can't expect to just sit at home and practice. You, know, you take the basic practice at home and just practice, 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 and somehow you're going to become enlightened. It's very easy to get off track. Our mind is tricking us all the time. We fall into these views and these beliefs and these ideas, thinking that we're on the right path, when actually they say it's like we can't see our own face. If you look at someone else, you can see right away whether their face is clean or dirty, or, or uh, whether they have, you know makeup smears or so on like this. But we can't see our own faces, so we can't tell whether our face is dirty. And it's much more the case with the, with our our mind. We we're the it's our mind. We're the ones using it. We're going through the motions. You know, I'm angry, so I'm angry. I'm not sitting there saying, "Oh yeah, here I come. I'm angry. I'm getting angry." But when someone else looks at you, they think, you know, you're getting angry, you should acknowledge. It's much easier. And so this is why, you know, it's a world of difference when you practice on your own and when you practice with a teacher. Because you, might, you can be as clever as you want. You know, your mind is much more clever than you are at tricking you and making you believe that somehow you're on the right path or, or you know, make, creating all these mental states, it can even make you paranoid and start to go crazy in your meditation if you're practicing on your own. It can happen. At the worst, 
mostly it just makes people afraid and when they come to something they don't know how to deal with they just give up meditating this is quite common but another, the other important thing here is it doesn't mean discussion with each other this is very dangerous probably about the the, the most common reason why meditators do go crazy and I've, I've never had one of my meditators go crazy but the most common reason that I've seen or heard of is because someone else who was not their teacher came in and started playing with their minds playing teacher and telling them to do this, to do that that this was the case or that was the case and this set them on a whole you know, spinning on this this uh, cycle of illusion and delusion, fear and anxiety and paranoia to the point where they just, you know, lost it. And it's, of course, temporary. This isn't the kind of thing you have to worry about where it's going to drive you insane and somehow there's this danger of somehow becoming a madman for the rest of your life. It's temporary. But I've seen it happen. I spent eight, I spent four nights in a mental hospital with a woman from Israel uh, who had this this sort of condition. She was crazy. She was totally crazy uh, for a short time. And eventually she came to after eight days. There were, they spent another four days after I left with her. And finally she sort of calmed down and she came back to sort of, sort of some kind of normality. But she was totally off track with, you know, there were people visiting her in her room and telling her all these strange, wonderful things. So this is one of the things that we impress upon meditators, that meditators are not to teach each other during the course and you're not to listen to anybody but your teacher or ask questions about your meditation from anyone but your teacher if it's about the meditation technique then we allow for the the this the the people who are on staff to answer questions technical questions about your practice but no, it should be nothing about the meditation practice itself there should be no instruction about how to deal with certain conditions or how to understand certain conditions, even if you think you've got the right answer. This is a very important thing, because the teacher you know, is setting the meditator up on a certain path and trying to keep them. Sometimes the, t the teacher has to be very delicate about what they give at what time. The teacher doesn't just sit there on the first day and give them all, everything they need to know. Every day you have to give them exactly what they need on that day. It's actually a very uh, delicate sort of process. You have to keep bringing the meditator back to present moment. When someone else comes, they just can just throw them right off, especially they don't know where the meditator's at, they don't know what their condition is, maybe they themselves are not meditating, and of course they themselves have not gotten sufficient training as a teacher. Even if they have, it's it'd be like a doctor giving medication to someone who had who was taking medication from another doctor. It's, it's unprofessional, it's wrong, and it causes lots of problems. So discussion here means discussion with your teacher. This is another sort of... Some people sometimes have questions. They even... I've heard people, I've heard people have bad opinions about our techniques, saying that we're, we're somehow uh, going against the Buddha's teaching by having reporting sessions. They think that somehow we're giving the meditators some kind of... Uh, or giving them enlightenment somehow, that somehow we're trying to enlighten them by our words or so on and we have this special technique and so they, they, they ridicule it and so here we have the Buddha's words himself that this discussion is a very important part of creating right view and the right view here is creating what is right practice so when meditators get on wrong practice when they think that bright lights are somehow a sign of enlightenment or you know, even uh, knowledge or understanding suddenly they have these epiphanies and they think they're enlightened all of a sudden 
it's up to the med- it's up to the teacher to bring the meditator back on track and have them acknowledge the good things that arise the things which are not the path so that they are able to understand what is the path and that is simply to know see clearly everything that arises not taking anything as special or different from anything else simply th- seeing that everything arises and ceases and so you have to you can say this all at once but if you're not there guiding the meditator every day uh, they, they very easily forget what it is that you've taught them. I can teach you all I want tonight, but for you to take it back and to put it into practice is a whole different thing. And it really uh, has very little success on, in the long term. It's important that you meet with the teacher on a regular basis so he can assess your, they can assess your uh, condition and your attachments and that they're able to give you... doesn't mean we sit there and we see someone who's full of anger and we say, you know, you're just an angry person, get over it. In fact, you have to be very subtle about it. You know, more often, you're, you're very much uh, going around the issue and teaching them very lightly. But you, there's a technique to it. And it's very important. It's, it's a whole different world, practicing on your own and practicing with a teacher. This is something I'd like to impress upon everyone. That it gives you the wrong idea. So this is wrong view. How do you get over wrong view? You have a teacher, someone who's gotten over it, who's gone through it, who's been there who understands what is a little bit, maybe a little bit more about reality. In fact, even there's cases of people who simply have studied all of the Buddha's teaching and understand it on an intellectual level, being able to teach people to become enlightened when they themselves are only ordinary people. They've maybe never practiced for themselves. But when someone comes, they're able to say, you know, the Buddha taught this and this and this, and the person, wow, and they just take it back and it really hits them and they go and they practice and they become enlightened when the teacher turns out to be an ordinary, everyday uh, individual. So, so this is what I mean to say. That there's, this actually happens, and it's for this reason, it's very important to find someone. They say, when the Buddha's alive, you shouldn't take anybody as your teacher but the Buddha. But when the Buddha's passed away, you go and find someone who is his chief disciple. When there's no chief disciple, you go down and down and down until you're finding you know, people who are at the various stages of enlightenment, and finally, there's nobody who's even parsh- even you know, ever seen the truth for themselves. Then you start looking at people who have studied a lot. And they can still have the ability to teach you. It's not to say that simply studying means you can't teach. It certainly means that you won't become enlightened yourself, which is much more important. But as meditators, we don't have to pick and choose that much. We look for people who are learned, and we look for people who seem to have practiced for themselves and seem to have some measure of understanding and, and insight for themselves. So this is the third thing which brings about right view. The fourth thing is samatha or tranquility. And this simply means bringing your mind to, to focus, bringing your mind to concentrate to the point where you don't have any emotional outbursts, where you're not judging things, not getting uh, overjoyed about things and not getting upset about things, where your mind is just peaceful and calm and focused on the present moment. So when you focus on the rising and the falling, for instance, in the, in the beginning it's very difficult and you get really stressed out over this because you're trying to force it and you can't even stop yourself from forcing it and there's lots of pain in the body and the mind is wandering here and wandering there. It's very difficult and the mind is full of hindrances, liking, disliking, wanting this, wanting that, not wanting this, not wanting that, until your mind settles down and when your mind settles down, this is when you're able to start to understand things. First, you can understand the difference 
that, wow, this is where real happiness is. When your mind first starts to settle down, and this is when you see all these great things, you realize what you've been missing out on, chasing after all this sensual pleasure, giving you this brief bursts of, of ecstasy, is actually minuscule compared to this wonderful state of prolonged ecstasy, uh, happiness, peace, bliss, which comes from meditation, this pure, unadulterated state of happiness, which has nothing to do with uh, addiction. Of course, it can become addictive, this is true. Um, but at the moment, there's no sense of liking it. There's no sense of wanting for anything. Your mind is just peaceful, it's just calm. And when you come out of it, you can find yourself wanting it or trying to get back there and thinking, oh, that was a really good, you know, craving it in some sense. So it is still dangerous. But this is something that gives you an understanding of the difference between uh, happiness seeking external happiness and happiness that we can find inside. It's not enough. And it's important to understand that, con that tranquility is simply a formation. It's something we create temporarily. If you work, for instance, if you work very, very hard at practicing transcendental meditation, you can gain these transcendental states. But equally so, when you stop working at them, they disappear. Why? Because it's not based on understanding. Wisdom is something completely different, and this is the fifth thing that leads to right view. This is the wisdom. And of course, this is the ultimate understanding. When you come to understand something, you can't say that somehow that understanding is going to fade away. No, it's, it's, it changes how you look at reality. When you see that everything ceases, when you realize for yourself the cessation of everything, when there's nothing more arising, there's no more arising, when the mind enters into cessation, and you realize that everything else is simply just a flicker in time, it changes the way you look at all these things, and suddenly they're no longer appealing to you. You're no longer chasing after anything, because you've seen their ultimate reality, this non-arising, this something which doesn't get old, doesn't get sick, doesn't die, something that doesn't end, that doesn't have a beginning, something that doesn't come and go. And when you realize this, then everything else is kind of, you know, any state of bliss or peace or happiness that arises in you, that suddenly somehow you feel peaceful, you feel happy, even these things, uh, you realize that they've arisen and they will cease. Everything that arises ceases. So here we have something that doesn't arise. And if it doesn't arise, it doesn't cease. And we have a whole different way of looking at things. No more addiction. The mind is just not addicted to things anymore. It doesn't want for things. And of course, in the beginning, it's, it's more like it doesn't want as much. And you're able to tone down some of these addictions because you've seen something that you can compare it with. And as you practice more and more and more, your desire for things which have arisen ceases. You have no more desire for things which arise because you've seen, you've seen clearly for yourself that which is true peace, true happiness, true freedom from suffering. This is what we mean by wisdom. And this is the practice of insight meditation, coming to see thing that everything around us is simply uh, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. There's no intricate nature, or there's no intrinsic nature of good or bad in anything. Everything around us is simply coming and going of its own nature. Coming to see things for what they are, not judging things, not getting confused or misinterpreting or giving, giving rise to wrong view about things. 
So vipassana meditation, the teaching of the Lord Buddha, is simply to see things as they are here and now. It has to be carried out in the present moment, and it has to be based on ultimate reality. Now, ultimate reality is sort of a high-sounding sort of phrase, but it simply means whatever's real about the experience that we have. So when we have pain, what's real about it is the pain. Suppose we have a, a headache. Well, what's real about it is the ache, the, the head, the my, the mind, the me, the I. All of this is, is concepts which arise in the mind. What's real there is there's an aching, and this is for sure. There's some experience, some feeling there, which we call aching. So we remind ourselves of this, so we can stop. We can stop all this chitter chatter of me and mine and bad and I need an aspirin or so on. And we just focus on the on the aching. So what's the problem? And then there is no problem. We say to ourselves, aching, aching, and there's no problem. And we come to see the thing for what it is, and we don't hold on to it anymore. As we slowly do this, it's kind of like uh, pouring water that gets rid of this, this sort of the sticky nature of the of the mind. The mind is like this sticky substance, and when you pour water over it, it dissolves. As you're mindful, all of the stickiness, it just sort of dissolves, and your mind no longer sticks to things. When you sit there and you're mindful, and you're acknowledging things as they are, the mind no longer sticks to things, and it's like the mind is able to slip out, is able to let go, is able to be free. These are the five things. This is number five, and altogether here there are five things. Altogether it means coming to our meditation center and starting to practice meditation. It means finding a place to practice and undertaking to try and make the mind tranquil, to learn how to practice uh, and to actually undertake the practice with a teacher who can discuss your practice with you. When your mind becomes focused, you'll be able to see clearly. When you can see clearly, your mind will let go. So all of these five things we say are very important in the arising of right view and this is the Dhamma which I wish to give on this occasion for those of you who have already started practicing it should be sort of an encouragement on where you need to go and what you need to do in terms of continuing on the path for those of you who haven't uh, yet come to practice then please I encourage you you're welcome to join us in our practice and uh, we have all of the resources available to help you on your path. So I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight and I hope that everyone here is able to find their own way to become free from all suffering and to find real peace and happiness in their own lives. Thank you and have a good night.